Excellent. Welcome. It's uh, the Torah portion this week is called Parshat Emor. And it's a portion in Leviticus. We're getting towards the end of Leviticus now. And it's uh, chapter 21 uh, through chapter 24 of Leviticus. Uh, so let's say a blessing for studying Torah and I'll see where our discussion goes today. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu B'Mitzvotav V'Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah Blessed are you, source of life, our God who sanctifies us with your commandments and has commanded us to engage in the words of Torah. This Parsha, parts of it, the first couple of chapters are the specific rules of what makes a Kohen, a priest, be ritually acceptable to serve in the inner sanctuary. And whenever I read those portions, year after year, you know, they still don't unfold for me in a meaningful way. Um, they're, from, they're from such a different time and worldview that uh, I don't relate to them. So I read them again this year, I still don't relate to them. So the next chapter, I always relate to. And chapter 23 is, um, a chapter that says, now these are the set times for the set holy times of the year. And it's a chapter that lays out the ancient holiday cycle, including the period of the calendar we're in right now, during which this chapter always happened, which is uh, during which this Parsha is always read, which is the description of the counting of the Omer between Passover and Shavuot. And I was drawn to that chapter uh, once again. And I wanna look at it briefly, but then I wanna actually, if I succeed, <laughs> expand out to a contemplation of the entire holiday cycle in the year and its evolution over time, something some of you have heard me teach before, but it continues to fascinate me. And I even made a, um, a graphic to share with you today because I've been wanting to do that and I couldn't find it online. And so I'll share that with you shortly. But first, let's look at the portion for a minute so that we're grounded in the, te in the text. And I'm not sure how much ground I'll be able to cover today, but, um, I find it very interesting, and I hope you will too. So I'm going to share my screen. And can you all see that? I'll make it a little bigger. Scoot it over a little bit. Is that pretty clear, everyone? Yeah? Okay. Yeah, that's okay. Good. Chapter 23, here it is. Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, these are my fixed times, <clears throat> the fixed times of yod heh vav -Hey, which you shall proclaim as sacred occasions. And here we go. 
initially, the first, the first insertion is Shabbat. On six days, work may be done, but on the seventh day, there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest, a sacred occasion. You shall do no work. It shall be a Sabbath of the Lord throughout your settlements. And then with that preface, it goes into the annual cycle. And these are the set times of the Lord repeating that same phrase. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, there shall be a Passover offering to the Lord. The first month in ancient Israel was not Rosh Hashanah, but was the month of spring, Aviv, Nisan. And so Passover is the beginning, you could say, of the liturgical year in the Bible. And I'll say more about that as we go. And on the 15th day of the month is the Chag Hamatzot, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days. So we have been doing that for a very long time. Now, Passover became eight days long in the diaspora, as did Sukkot, as did Rosh Hashanah, it became two days instead of one, as did Shavuot, became two days instead of one. That was a function of Jews being scattered outside the land of Israel and not having a way to know for certain by watching the moon whether they were coinciding their celebration, which was with the celebration in the land of Israel. That's where the second day and where the extra Seder comes from. All that comes from living in diaspora. Um, in Israel, and now in many, also in, in, in other parts of the world that have said, we don't need this custom anymore. Uh, in Israel, for sure, there's one Seder and seven days. Um, and so uh, there's seven days of Sukkot, not eight days in the fall and so on. Uh, so that's why it says seven days, which makes sense given the week being the most important cycle, the cycle of seven in the Torah. Uh, and then it describes the offerings on Passover. And then it says, speak to the Israelite people and say to them, when you enter the land that I'm giving to you to, and you reap its harvest, you shall bring the first sheaf of your harvest to the priest. There's the word omer, a sheaf. A she an omer was some measure of a bundle of grain. Um, and the priest shall elevate the sheaf before Yodhei for acceptance on your behalf. The priest shall elevate it on the day after the Sabbath. Now we're going to discuss this. Some of you are familiar with this. Uh, what are they talking about the day after the Sabbath? What Sabbath? And on the day that you elevate the sheaf, you shall offer as a burnt offering to the Lord a lamb of the first year without blemish. More descriptions of what happens on that special day when you bring the first sheaf of the harvest. 
Um, and then it says, um, and from the day on which you bring the sheaf of the elevation offering, the day after the Sabbath, you shall count off seven weeks. They must be complete. And you must count until the day after the seventh week, 50 days. And then you shall bring an offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your settlements two loaves of bread as an elevation offering. Each shall be made of this much flour and leavened. That's really significant since remember the previous holiday, it was unleavened as first fruits to the Lord, bikurim. And you bring the offerings and a goat and the lambs, etc. And uh, on that same day, you hold a celebration. So here's how the ancient, here's what's laid out in the Torah. The first festival on the full moon of spring is Passover for seven days. And then it says, you shall, on the day after the Sabbath, you shall gather uh, a sheaf of your harvest, bring it to the priest who offers it and waves it before God in gratitude. And then you count off seven weeks of days. And on the 50th day, which in Greek is called Pentecost, and in Hebrew is called Shavuot, which means weeks, W-E-E-K-S. You then bring, with the new grain that you've harvested, you bring two leavened loaves to the priest who takes those and offers them up. So picture this ancient agrarian society, because that's what's being described here. And the Mishnah, which is the rabbinic description of uh, the rabbinic expansion of the Torah describes in great detail uh, what would happen. It, uh, I was reading about it. Um, I wanted to say uh, it was celebrated with a great deal of ceremony and festivity. And the priest would mix it with oil and frankincense after it had been sifted through 13 sieves. And the priest would take the offering on his outstretched hands and move it from side to side and up and down. And as an agrarian festival, it's not at all hard for me to imagine this in an ancient indigenous agrarian society. You bring this first offering to the God or gods, to the great spirit, and you know, you offer it up in gratitude. And then that was the barley harvest, which ripened earlier than the wheat harvest. The wheat harvest ripened seven weeks later. So seven weeks later, you bring the wheat harvest. And that too is offered up with leavened loaves of the new wheat. Okay. So that's this ancient festival. This chapter goes on then. And then it says, as always, and when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. 
that is a refrain that we've spoken about many times in the Torah that forms the foundation of making sure that everyone in the society can sustain themselves. And then it goes on to describe, and I won't focus on this today, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe complete rest, a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts of the shofar. That's Rosh Hashanah. And then 10 days later, you mark the day of atonement. And then on the 15th day of that seventh month is the Feast of Booths, Sukkot which is the fall harvest festival. And then on the eighth day, there's a final sacred occasion known as Shmini Atzeret, the eighth day, at which point, this is important to note, there are no more holidays in the Bible until Passover again. It's now winter. It's the rainy season. Everybody goes home. The pilgrimage festivals are over. You're going to start ramping up again in the spring for this holy cycle of holidays that occupy exactly one half of the year. Uh, and then the other half, there were no festivals. Um, okay. Um, Omer mean exactly what does Omer mean exactly and how would it be spelled in English? Well, you spelled it correctly, Romy. Omer means sheaf, a sheaf of wheat. And it seems to have been a specific measure amount, like a bushel or something like that. Uh, so that's what Omer means. So our agrarian origins are in the very name of what we're doing right now, which is a period of time where we are waiting for the wheat harvest and from the barley harvest, we're counting off the weeks. Oh, and Rob, booths is Sukkot. It would be translated in modern Hebrew as shelters. Um, uh, that's what a Sukkah is. Um, and again, the Sukkot are an, from an agrarian custom. Oh, Karen says the next chapter 24, which I wasn't going to focus on today, begins with the lighting of the lamps with olive oil. It holds the place and seems to foreshadow the celebration of Hanukkah. That's nice, Karen. I hadn't thought of it that way. I like the connection. And Roni says, so why is counting wheat sheets holy? Because in an agrarian society, in the land of Israel, which relied on the winter rains and then, uh, and then on the emerging summer weather to ripen the grain. It was a time of vigil uh, in which you were wa waiting for the harvest, the, um, the, not the harvest, the uh, reaping of the wheat. And for them, uh, this was, this was, a gift from God. This was going to sustain them. The barley harvest, successful barley harvest, and then the successful wheat harvest was going to sustain them until the following Passover. 
when they would eat the last of the old grain and then harvest again. So again, looking at the agrarian origins of our tradition, that's the sacred rhythm. Um, what I wanted to describe to you today is how Judaism's sacred calendar evolved from this. The Torah already states that Passover, in addition to being the festival of um, <clears throat> spring, is also the festival of our liberation from slavery. We know that. That's right in the Torah. The Torah spends a lot of time on that. We know from later in our portion, chapter 23, that we were just showing, that Sukkot, the agrarian origins of these Sukkot, these booths, these shelters, was that it was traditional and it still happens in the Middle East. You would go and actually live in your field in a temporary arbor that you built so that you could harvest the, the rest of your crops, not the wheat and the barley have already been harvested, but the, the, the wheat has been drying in the field and the, it has to be gathered because uh, Sukkot's other name is the feast of the, the festival of the, in, of the Asif, the in-gathering, the bringing it all in from the fields. And in addition to whatever other, other crops were ripening uh, that needed to be collected before the rains started, usually right after Sukkot. So they would actually live in the Sukkot in order to gather in the crops as expeditiously as they could. Um, but even in the time of the Torah, our portion, Sukkot was associated with um, uh, the shelters that we lived in, the temporary shelters that we lived in supposedly when we wandered through the wilderness. Now, this is a whole other story, which is that it doesn't say Sukkot that we lived in Sukkot. It says that we lived in tents, T-E-N-T-S, right? So if you want the tradition to be consistent with itself, you're stuck. It doesn't happen. This is a more of a figurative understanding that we lived in temporary shelters protected by God's grace as we wandered 40 years through the wilderness. In other words, Passover is the beginning of our journey in springtime out of slavery. Six months later, Sukkot is the festival that marks both the end of the growing season and the beginning of the rains and our journey towards the promised land. But what of Shavuot? And many of you know this already, there is no mention in the Torah that Shavuot is the festival when we re celebrate receiving the Torah. All it's called in the Bible is the festival of the first fruits. This is, and it's a sort of, while the Passover and, and Sukkot are week-long pilgrimage festivals where you would, uh, you know, that mirror each other on opposite uh, poles of the, of the calendar, Shavuot is just a day. The rabbis elevated 
Shavuot to the category of not just agricultural, but mythic historical festival. They were the ones who did it. In the Torah itself, there's no festival for giving the Torah. It was the rabbis who said, wait, we need something to celebrate receiving the Torah. And they, they, um, uh, turned Sukkot, they turned Shavuot into a festival of equal mythic import as the two other festivals, uh, Passover, liberation from slavery, and Sukkot, journeying towards the promised land. And they made Shavuot the festival for receiving the Torah, even though it doesn't say that anywhere in the Torah. And the reason I'm sharing that with you, again, is I want you to understand Judaism evolution, this kind of um, organic, brilliant evolution of the Jewish calendar into um, uh, a way that if we live it, we recapitulate our sacred history, not our recorded history, not these dates are not fixed. They are, they're not, they're not verifiable dates. These, this is our mythic history, our spiritual journey from slavery to liberation, from liberation to revelation at Mount Sinai, then from revelation to journey towards the promised land. We recapitulate that sacred um, uh, um, journey every year in a celebration of the holidays. Now the rabbis did that with a complete sleight of hand that is evident, not just implicitly, but explicitly evident in the rabbinic literature, in the Mishnah, because they faced this contradiction. The contradiction was that it doesn't say, and from the beginning of Passover, you shall celebrate seven weeks. You shall count seven weeks, and the 50th day is Shavuot. It says, first it describes, for, let me share the screen again, just so you know what I'm talking about. Here's the description of Passover on the 14th day of the month of twilight, seven days. Seven days you shall, and then it says, when you enter the land that I am giving to you and re you reap its harvest, you shall bring the first sheaf of your harvest to the priest. And he shall elevate the sheaf before the Lord for acceptance in your behalf. The priest shall ele elevate it on the day after the Sabbath. That's all it says. It doesn't say the day after the Passover Seder. It says the day after the Sabbath. So it would appear that these two traditions of Passover and then the counting of the Omer for 49 days were not related to each other exactly, but were two linked but separate agricultural traditions. But the rabbis, so, cause we don't know what it means the day after which Sabbath, uh, they knew what they meant, but we don't know what they mean. The rabbis didn't know what they meant either. 
And in the centuries, uh, second century before the common era, in, those, in that period that we call the rabbinic period, the period under Roman rule, um, Uh, is this biblical telling of offering to the priest similar to the Hindu prasad where you offer and cook all food for Krishna before eating it yourself? Exactly, Roni. Exactly. And I actually remember going to a Kali temple where they sacrificed a goat and I watched it, you know, and uh, when I was in India. So yes, it's the same impulse. You share your, you share your bounty with gratitude with the creator before you partake of it. Um, and that's, that's what's behind all of the biblical sacrificial laws. Same, exact same thing. Thank you for pointing that out. So the rabbis wanted there to be a sacred journey through the calendar year that reflected the sacred journey of the Israelites from slavery to freedom. And so they insisted against all evidence in the text. Remember this, chutzpah, against all evidence in the text that the counting that Sabbath in that passage meant Passover and that the counting would be done starting the day after the, the Seder, the, the Passover sacrifice. Other sects in Judaism, the Sadducees and other, pre and other sects completely disagreed with them. And so when you read the Mishnah, you read this dramatic passage where the rabbis would do this despite the objections of the other sects because they wanted to link Shavuot 50 days later to Passover. Eventually over time, the rabbinic practice became the norm. And they succeeded in essentially creating a festival uh, for celebrating the, re the receiving of the Torah that the Torah doesn't describe. The Torah only describes it as a festival for the first fruits of the harvest. So this evolution, I wanna share with you a graphic that I made today. I don't have the computer skills to do this, so I did it by hand. Now, let's see if you can see this. I'm gonna move it over, let's see, hold on. Can you see my circle? Is it too small? It's okay. It's okay? Okay. I had fun. Um, this circle, this full circle, is the cycle of the year. Passover, hold on a second. Is the full moon of spring. Sukkot is the full moon of fall. As you can see, the winter months, Hanukkah, Tubishvat, and Purim, none of those are biblically 
exist in the Bible. And so I just feel like nobody could have a stretch of time with no holidays. Six months, that's no good. Eventually, fortunately, we got all these lovely observances that worked their way into the Jewish calendar. But in the ancient land of Israel, this was the rainy cold season and people weren't going anywhere. So you lived Jewish sacred time during the dry season, these six months. Now, when we studied with Matthew Wright uh, about Judaism and Christianity, it's really interesting that Christians who follow their liturgical calendar closely live, live through the life, the birth and life and death of Jesus in between Christmas, which happens right, right about here, and Easter, which happens here. Jesus is born, and there is a very intricate um, division of time lent uh, all the way to Easter when Jesus is crucified and resurrected. And the rest of the time I learned from Matthew in the Christian year is just kind of sort of called ordinary time. Well, in Judaism, it's actually the other half of the calendar that becomes liturgical time if you live it. And that begins with Passover and continues to Sukkot. And as you can see, look how much more action is here on this side of the calendar than on this winter side. That always lets you know that Judaism is connected to our indigenous roots. As an agrarian society whose liturgical life is determined by the seasonal cycle in that part of the world. Um, and I find that I find that to be very interesting. We're not, we are, we continue to be connected to that rhythm of the land of Israel. And that's why when you, if you do live in Israel, living the holidays makes a kind of physical innate sense. You just get it in a different way there than you do outside of the land of Israel. There's no question about it for me. Okay, so what I wanted to share with you, let me make sure there's, uh, um, where's my chat? It disappeared. Well, if you're asking me questions, I'll check in a little while. Um, Cause I'm trying, I'm, I'm looking at this graphic and it's taking up all my screen. Um, okay, so here we are. Pesach, Passover, the full moon of Nisan, also known as the festival of Matzah, the festival of liberation, the festival of spring, when the barley harvest is taken in. And then this circle that parallels this inner one, I made little things. This is the seven days of Passover. This is the 49 days of the Omer. So the rabbis established that you count the Omer for 49 days, during which you're journeying to Mount Sinai, when agriculturally the wheat is ripening. And after 49 days of counting, you arrive 
at the festival of the first fruits, Chag HaKatsir, which means the festival of reaping, the festival of Shavuot, revelation, entering the covenant, standing at Mount Sinai, all of that happens here. So with this innovation for the rabbis of linking Passover to Shavuot explicitly, we now travel, we ascend from Egypt for 49 days till we arrive at Mount Sinai and receive the Torah in a timeless way. We are reliving a spiritual journey from slavery to liberation to revelation and covenanting, entering into a sacred relationship with the creator. Again, I've mentioned this many times. If you're not living in Jewish sacred time, Pesach is a great holiday. It stands for liberation, right? Nothing wrong with that. Shavuot, if you even mark it, we're at Mount Sinai. We're celebrating receiving the Torah. But if you take the journey by counting, and it's traditional to count every day, then you're journeying from liberation to revelation. And even while you're living in, in, in natural time, while the grain ripens, you're also on a spiritual journey. And the Jewish spiritual journey is a journey of ascent and descent, or you could say connection and exile, returning and being exiled. Here is this mounting journey towards the sacred mountain and the receiving of the Torah. So what happens in the Torah after we receive the Torah? Well, Moses ascends the mountain, right? After everyone hears the words of the Torah, if you read the Torah narrative, Moses ascends the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So somewhere along the line, and I can't find the exact origin of this, it becomes customary to keep counting the days. And this works out marvelously. So if you keep counting the days that Moses is on the mountain, 40 days after Shavuot, you come to a date called the 17th of Tammuz. Now the 17th of Tammuz is a fast day on the Jewish calendar. Not in the Torah, but it's a fast day that marks when the walls of Jerusalem were breached by the Romans in the year 70 of the first century. We are now jumping ahead out of ancient biblical time into the history of the Jews in the first century, during which, during these three weeks that are called the three weeks, Jerusalem is breached and then the temple is destroyed on the ninth of Av, on Tisha B'Av. 
So the rabbis had this day that was already in their time, a day of catastrophe. And they linked it to liturgical time. And they said, well, what happens 40 days after Moses, while Moses is on the mountain? The children of Israel are creating the golden calf. They say, where is that man, Moses? And somewhere in here, they lose their patience and they worship the golden calf. Moses comes down after 40 days, carrying the tablets in his hands. He sees the worship of the golden calf and Moses shatters the tablets. Now, again, in the Torah, this connection is not explicit. They're not, they don't say what date he came down. They don't say what date he went up. But in the genius of the rabbis, we now have another 40-day link to this fast day, this disconnection. Liberation, connection, connection, connection at Mount Sinai. 40 days later, utter disconnection. When you read the story, there's a period of rebellion, of horrible revolt and suppressing a revolt, a terrible time. It doesn't say how long it lasts. But the rabbis, somewhere along the way, said, well, let's count 40 days from the 17th of Tammuz. Where will that bring us? To the new moon of Elul. And we know in the Jewish tradition, the new moon of Elul is when we turn ourselves towards the new year, towards Rosh Hashanah. And by the way, I did the counting. Is it 40 days or is it 41 or is it? Doesn't matter. We know that 40 is like one of the numbers in Jewish tradition. It represents a whole cycle. And so for, close enough. I was doing the counting. It's like, eh, maybe, maybe it's 41. Doesn't matter. Because this isn't science, right? This was the idea of walking in these sacred numbers of ancient times. And so from this period of profound disconnection, there's these 40 days of disconnection. And then our tradition says that on the first of Elul, Moses went up the mountain again. Well, guess what comes exactly 40 days after the first of Elul? One month is Rosh Hashanah, 10 days later, Yom Kippur. And so Yom Kippur is understood in this sacred liturgical time to be the day when Moses descends with the second tablets. God forgives us for our rebellion and our breaking of the covenant. And the covenant is restored and we have a new coming together of at one on Yom Kippur. It's so interesting to me, 49, then 40, 40, 40. Connect, exile, reconnect. 
on Yom Kippur, Salachti Kidvarecha, God says, I have forgiven you and we can keep going now. And so just four days after Yom Kippur is the festival of Sukkot, where the children of Israel, in a sense, embark on their journey, protected and connected to the source of liberation. And they're on their way to the promised land. Sukkot is known as the festival of joy, the festival of harvest, and they're on their way to the promised land. And so why I wanted to make this picture for you is so that you could imagine that if you really lived in the Jewish calendar, you would actually be following the journey, the mythic journey of our ancestors every day. Every day you could locate yourself in the sacred story from liberation to profound connection, to loss of connection, to reconnection, and then to celebration um, with God in the, in the sukkah. And then a final day of celebration at the end of Sukkot. And in the rabbinic literature, it's clear, everybody would then skedaddle home in order to beat the rains and hunker down for a while with their winter stores, hopefully all stored up and away. But in the meantime, we're also walking on the sacred journey. Uh, here, let me stop sharing so I can. Uh, right, Roni made a comment about uh, Christianity and the feminine, but we're not gonna go in that direction today. Um, so I wonder if you have any comments or questions uh, about this picture I made. I just really wanted to share it with you. Yes, Naomi says, interesting about the sacred number 40, the same number of weeks in the gestation of a newborn. I think we've talked about this. I've speculated for years, okay, why 40? And still to this day, your due date is determined that way, 40 weeks. And so the 40 in the Torah, I'd, I've, I have made my best guess that it's attached to a period of gestation from, from uh, conception to birth, um, because that sounds right to me. So now, so there, I got to share my picture with you. Let me share one other thing about it with you. The rabbis put another sacred cycle in. And that begins here. The 17th of Tammuz, when Jerusalem's walls are breached in the first century. Now we're in, his, now we're in a different 
a different place in Jewish history. The three weeks until the temple is destroyed. Well, if you calculate, there are seven weeks after that until Rosh Hashanah. And liturgically, those are called the seven weeks of consolation. Because, and the rabbis chose seven special passages from the prophets to be read every week in synagogue that say, you will return. God will take you back. It will be okay. So this whole period is a period of anticipating the possibility of reunion with the divine. But there's another level as well. In the 20th century, you see how I wrote in here one Yom HaShoah and Yom HaAtzma'ut. The Jewish calendar is a living calendar as much as we are a living people. And even in the 20th century, there are new cycles of, of destruction and rebuilding of catastrophe and renewal that are working their way into the Jewish calendar to this day. And this is the Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, and Yom HaAtzma'ut, Israeli, Israeli Independence Day, are part of the liturgical calendar, once again, recapitulating this cycle in Judaism of exile and destruction, redemption and renewal. Uh, Roni said, the one part of the diagram that bothered me was your conclusion that Judaism was heavily concentrated with holidays from spring to fall, whereas Christianity moves from Christmas to, to Easter. My point about resurrection was that this coincides with Passover and that the Christians and Jews are more similar than different. Oh, I completely agree with you, Roni. I was just pointing out that, um, uh, that in terms of, if you are a very religious person, if you're a very religious Christian, your high time is from the beginning of Advent before Christmas, all the way to Easter. And then Easter when Jesus is, um, I should have said, it doesn't end with Easter, it ends with Pentecost. So there's a lot of overlap because at Easter, Jesus dies and is resurrected. But 50 days later at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends on his apostles. So that if you are a very religious Christian who's, who's following each Sabbath, each Sunday, you are living through that every year, the life of Jesus, Jesus's death and Jesus's resurrection. If you are a very religious Jew who really, really connects and lives through the Jewish calendar, your high liturgical time is from Passover to Shavuot to Yom Kippur, all the way around those months. And uh, Matthew Wright and I have talked about this a lot. The intense overlap is between Passover and Shavuot, because for Jews, that's the time when we're liberated from slavery. And then we enter into our sacred covenant with God and receive the Torah seven weeks later. For Christians, Passover is when Jesus, the Lamb of God, is sacrificed and then for our, our sins are forgiven 
And then seven weeks later, the spirit of the Holy Spirit comes down and rests on the apostles and they celebrate that as Pentecost. So there's an overlap, but they are, I'm just talking about the heightened time that most of us didn't learn about in the kind of, um, if we learned anything, uh, it, uh, we knew when the holidays were, but we didn't know how they were kind of heightened by the links between them. Deborah said, it also seems to me that in losing our connection to the cycles of the earth, many of us have lost a sense of connection to the divine. Well said. Um, uh, again, for the Zionists, the return to Israel was an opportunity to, it, the Zionists saw Judaism as being disconnected from our bodies and from the earth. And the Zionist revolution, which they saw themselves as revolutionaries, was to create a new kind of Jew who is once again connected to the land. That was Zionism. It was as much an agricultural revolution as anything, but how do you do it? You do it by returning to the ancestral homeland. Now the Zionists were, for them, they were anti-religious almost entirely but they weren't anti-Bible or anti-Judaism. The Zionists read the Bible and reinvented the festivals as agricultural celebrations. So to this day on Kibbutzim, Passover is the festival of spring. Shavuot is a festival where they dress the whole dining hall up, even though there are very few communal Kibbutzim, they still follow these practices, dress the whole dining room with greenery and flowers, and the kids come in on tractors carrying bushels of uh, produce, and the same in the fall at Sukkot. Uh, so actually, the Zionists recast or reclaimed the agricultural origins of the festivals. Um, and uh, were an attempt to make Ju Judaism into a land-based tradition again. Um, we survived in diaspora by in many ways disconnecting ourselves from the physical place where we live and living in Jerusalem, you know, living in a world where we imagine that we are in exile and that we were one day going to return. Um, there was a price to be paid for this, which was a loss of our connection to the earth. Um, and so the indigeneity of Judaism exists in the Torah and in early rabbinic literature, but then we get Ripped, off, ripped away from it um, until the 20th century, when by living in the land of Israel once again, and in its rhythms, the initial wisdom of the Torah can become, uh, becomes evident again by, 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 by living it on the land. Jesus is called the Lamb of God. Robin, this is a great thing to bring up. And it's uh, a, a it's a digression, a three-minute digression that leads to 
a lifetime of inquiry. Christianity, the early Christians were Jews. They were a bunch of Jews in the first century. And their, their frame of understanding the world was the Bible, the Torah. And so the Passover sacrifice, which was a lamb, which you then took the blood of and put over your doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over your house, became for them, Jesus became the lamb because Jesus died and Jesus's blood protected us and saved us. And so that's why Easter in Greek is Pascha, Pesach. Um, Christianity is an interpretation of the Torah. That's what it is. And we've spent many sort of mind-blowing weeks in our classes, and these are available on recordings on the website, and I really recommend them. Um, if, you haven't, if you haven't listened to them, exploring how Judaism as we know it and Christianity as we know it are two interpretive branches off the exact same tree. Kissing cousins that eventually develop into separate traditions. Um, but the roots of our connectedness are, um, are everywhere when you start studying, the study, studying it closely. Okay, so that brings us to two o'clock. I hope you enjoyed my, uh, my pictures. Um, the recordings are on the website. Karen, is, where, how do they access the recordings most easily of our Judaism and Christianity classes? Uh, I'll put the link here in the chat. It's on our website. I'll, I'll get the link. Great, great. So we are, uh, today is the, um, April 29th. So today is the 32nd day of the Omer. We're counting up to 50. Tomorrow is called Lagba Omer, the 33rd day of the Omer, which we didn't even talk about today. I meant to, but uh, I didn't get to it. Um, and uh, I just, I guess I'll just have to stop there. Um, Lagba Omer is, is sort of the Jewish May Day and uh, is a, a, a day on the, I didn't even mark it in our, my, I have to put it into my, um, my picture. It's, uh, it's um, a, a day of um, outdoor activities, bonfires, celebrations, and uh, again, is deeply related to other May Day type celebrations in the, especially in the European world um, and uh, has no, um, when I was in Jewish day school, it was the day when we got to have the teacher student baseball game, you know, and we didn't have to be in class all day. So that's, this Lagbomer is a sweet holiday. Uh, anyway, 
Uh, Karen put it in. Uh, and uh, you go to wjcshul.org. Well, then it says mute. But I don't see me. Who's speaking? Oh, Michael's speaking. Yeah. Um, I uh, so you go to um, wjcshul.org, go to our podcast playlists, and then scroll down and you'll see all kinds of stuff there. Uh, um, anything with Matthew Wright is worth listening to. That's for sure. All righty.